Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Today, I've got a fellow veteran uh, with me on the show. I've had the privilege of being on his show, uh, which was awesome. But now I actually have the master, the wizard, uh, Alan Lomax on uh, my show. And I'm looking to dig into what history has taught both of us, because we're a couple of old dogs in this fight. And uh, I just want to see what we've learned, how we've come through this. And so, guys, you're really going to get some treats out of this. I know that Alan's got a lot to say. Uh, and so welcome to the show, Alan. Well, thank you, Shannon. It's a pleasure to be here. I wouldn't count myself as one of the wise men, but I am glad to be here with you today. Well, you know, Alan, one of the things that we have had the opportunity to learn, I would I would count myself with you as not really the sharpest knife in the drawer. However, when you make enough mistakes, like I've done in my life, you tend to learn from those. And, you know, you've been in this game for a while. We're seeing in a, in a market that a lot of people have gotten into real estate in the last couple of years they haven't seen. So why don't you go back and tell us a little bit about your story, how you got here, what your experience has been, and then we kind of dive into some of the questions about what you see, uh, how that shaped you, and how we're moving forward. Well, I got started uh, back in uh, the um, the late 1990s, essentially. I mean, I had uh, this was before podcast, but I had been uh, tuning into various different kinds of real estate education programs and reading uh, various different books uh, that uh, that were in a lot of ways, I think uh, really turned out to be fairly uh, deceitful and that they really weren't telling the whole entire picture of what it takes to be a real estate investor and what is uh, involved in actually being successful in uh, the real estate industry. But I delved into it. Uh, I put my feet into the water, essentially. I was, uh, I was teaching at the University of Guam, and the first uh, property I bought was a uh, property in Durango, Colorado. That was where I had lived prior to going to Guam. And so I brought the, bought this property. Uh, it was a raw piece of land, and I built a home there with the intention of being able to use that as a place that I could go to. So I essentially built it as a duplex so that I could rent out a portion of it and uh, have my uh, house payment paid for, and yet I would have a place to go to when I came back to the States. Well, that, that was good and fine, and it worked out uh, very well. It gave me a place to come to, and it was paying uh, the rent. 
And that was good and fine. I moved back to the States, uh, to uh, Kingsville, Texas. And uh, I decided that it would be a good idea to get into uh, to mobile homes. And so I purchased uh, a rundown mobile home, had it moved to a lot in a, a park. Uh, I, at, uh, I renovated it. And uh, then I sold my home that I was living in. I sold it on a contract. That's what we were taught to do. And I did. And that, that worked out well, too, and fine. And, um, and I earned interest on that uh, for a good two years. Uh, then I got a job in uh, Western North Carolina, uh, teaching at, uh, at, uh, at Western uh, University. And, uh, and so I then sold uh, my mobile home there in uh, South Texas and did okay on that as well. The problem started when I came to, uh, to North Carolina. So I purchased a very nice home, and uh, and I immediately began to divide that into uh, to three uh, to three separate dwellings, and uh, and was doing very well on that. My payment was uh, paid. Uh, my mortgage payment was paid because of that. So I purchased uh, another. Uh, property divided it into a triplex, and uh, that was working fine and well, and everything was going well and fine and good. Uh, and then, in uh, two thousand and eight, uh, things turned drastically uh, different. I, uh, at the same time that the recession hit in two thousand and eight. I also uh, lost my uh, teaching job at Western, and uh, there was no way I could sustain uh, these two properties. Even though they were paying mortgages, they certainly were not cash flowing to the degree that that I I could live off of those. Uh, and the reason that they were not is because in a from an investor perspective, even though uh, while I had an income to sustain all that, I didn't purchase those properties at a price that would allow it to be sustained without me supplementing those incomes. And so they, uh, I, uh, I was able to hold on to, uh, to them for uh, a couple of years into that recession. Eventually, uh, one of the properties was uh, foreclosed. And uh, then ultimately, I was actually able to sell, uh, sell one of the properties and uh, to essentially sell it for a, a good price. Uh, and with the proceeds from that, I um, I then purchased another uh, piece of raw property, and uh, and this is where I guess the real problems really uh, set in is that uh, I 
I over I was overly optimistic in terms of what I could get for this particular uh, spec home. And uh, so I took everything I had in uh, from uh, the sale of this one particular property, which was about $100,000. I put that into the property and the development of the property. I got some uh, private uh, funds to uh, complete that uh, process. And this was long about 2016. And the real estate market at that time was still not in its full recovery and it was still essentially in our area was still kind of lepping along. Well, I was way over, misty, over optimistic in what I could get for that uh, particular property. And uh, having the private funding for that, they were short-term loans uh, that were coming due and uh, I had to pay the, uh, the private lenders and take care of them. And so I really had to sell that property at a loss. And uh, in terms of that, uh, then actually had to do a refinance on my own uh, personal uh, property at that time, which was, which I owned free and clear, which was a very nice place to be. But I had to mortgage that to actually make these, uh, these uh, places satisfied. Also at the time that uh, I, but this was back in 2008 when I had lost uh, my job there. I had severance pay as well as retirement pay. And so at that point in time, I also, I purchased a mobile home park. Um, and uh, I, I overdeveloped it and uh, put uh, mobile homes in there that, uh, that cost too much and uh, that, uh, that didn't allow me to really take out of it the kinds of cash flow that I could have if I had uh, left it with more modest homes and had not overdeveloped uh, it. So I, 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 it was a, uh, it was a mobile home park in which I spent a lot of time, effort, and energy, uh, and. Uh, I just wanted out of it. <laughs> it was just, yeah. uh, it was just draining too much energy. So I sold it, uh, and I uh, I sold it essentially at a loss. But I didn't have to incur any any further debt to to get out of that. But so that was it, and so that brought me to the place where uh, where I have been focused for the last two years is actually uh, developing uh, my network, uh, my capabilities to actually go into uh, significant commercial uh, real estate investments uh, rather than trying to piecemeal it together uh, from individual places. So that is where I am today. So that's my history uh, and uh, what would you call it? Not too impressive. <laughs> well, you know, but it's it's always to me, it's the people that learn from the history and change things that aren't bound to repeat it, right? And the reality is if you have to repeat your history day in and day out and you're not making changes, the world or, or the universe or God or whatever is going to continue to put those kinds of challenges in front of you until you can handle them to get to the next level. So when you do have things like that and you don't learn, and we're seeing a lot of people right now in today's market that haven't learned anything, mm 
mm-hmm. or are uh, I do see a lot of people that are learning a lot. They're taking a lot of notes. They're making drastic changes. Uh, they're being very active in their own rescue. Uh, and you're seeing things are being adapted to a place where we are able to get into a, a bigger mindset, right? I mean, mm-hmm. none of this came to us just because we woke up one day and said, hey, I want a $100 million real estate portfolio, or I want to invest in mobile home parks. There was this learning process that came with it. And with that process, there was an obligation to us to learn from the mistakes of yesterday in order to not repeat them, in order to have a better reality of what ourselves and our investors could expect moving forward. You That's know, one the, of the things yeah. that, that real estate will always show you is that it's constantly changing, right? Mm-hmm. It is one of the most secure investments you can find because you actually do own a real asset, but it's always changing. Interest rates are changing. Cap rates are changing. Things are being uh, being constantly in flux, rent values, all those kinds of things, so that you can really kind of see that if you're not adaptable and you're not willing to take what blew up yesterday, fix it, put it back in the machine and get it to work today until another part fails or another issue happens, you're really not going to do that well in real estate. So as we're looking, Alan, at the lumpy road we have ahead of us where interest rates are a factor, cap rates are changing, a lot of people have overpaid. If you overpaid and you have capital reserves, you're going to be okay. If you overpaid, don't have capital reserves and overpromised, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. What is it that you see looking at the forecast ahead that gives you hope about real estate investing? Well, this is, uh, well, what gives me hope is the fact that this is going to be a very rocky road and a very, very, very sad road for many people that in a very selfish way that is opening all kinds of opportunities for people like me who are wanting to purchase uh, properties at this point in time, because uh, there's so many things that are happening. Uh, the Libor is, the Libor is going away this summer. That's going to cause the reset of all kinds of mortgages. And those mortgages came in at two and three percent interest rates. They're going to have to reset at four, five, and six percent interest rates. And these people, I mean, like you had mentioned, there's so many people who are new to this industry. They didn't prepare for that. Yeah. And the only way they're going to get out of that is to. Uh, to sell short, like I've had to do in the past. And that's wonderful buying opportunities. And I mean, that's good for me, good for people like you, who started positioning themselves for these, but it's going to be very, very bad for a lot of people. Um, You know, you know, Alan, one of the things that I'm seeing is, and, and you mentioned it selling short, I don't, do you know anyone that's been in real estate for over a decade? that hasn't sold at least a deal, a property somewhere along the way short. I know I have. I think, uh, you know, I haven't interviewed everybody in the industry, but I think probably if these old timers are honest about the fact, uh, you know, we all 
you know, we all think we have learned a whole lot and we know a whole lot. And, and we find that the best way that we learn is through hard knocks. And yeah. so, yes, yeah. I expect that um, any successful real estate investor, almost any has had to deal with that before. Well, and, you know, the reality is I think some of the most creative deals I've ever done are picking myself up off the floor when something unexpected come blowing in, knock me off my feet. I now have to react. I've got to do something different. I've got to make things happen. And the reality is if I'm not going to do that, then I'm not going to learn. And then I'm going to have to repeat this until I do. But what I'm seeing, and I've even seen where over the last couple of years, I've made mistakes, right? I'm not afraid to admit that. But I also have come to a place where I know that my investors expect that of me. My investors mm -hmm. expect honesty, right? If every deal is an absolute home run, rock star, never any issues, never any bumps, uh, either I'm a wizard or I'm a liar, right? right? And people believe you until you give them reason not to. And if you're always, always never having issues and never doing anything wrong, they're not going to tend to believe that rosy picture all the time, right? And so. I look at a lot of this stuff and I go, you know what? Um, there's going to be some some real come to Jesus moments. Like you said, there'll be buying opportunities for some. There'll be learning opportunities for others. And there'll be a lot of people that will leave the game. There'll be a lot of people that just like they did when Tesla stock crashed, just like they did when Bitcoin crashed, just like they did the last time real estate crashed. There are people that get in very close to the top of the market and get out very close to the bottom of the market. And there's a simple buying philosophy that I've never understood, but I've always learned you buy low, sell high, not the other way around, mm -hmm. but there seems to be a lot of people that are in for that kind of pain. What do you, what do you think the difference is in the mentality of the people that pick themselves up off the floor, learn from it and do it again versus the person that endures this first cycle of pain and exits? Well, I've asked myself that question a lot, in not just in terms of real estate, but looking at all the hundreds of students I've had in my psychology classes is, is you know, why are some uh, students resilient and able to pick themselves up from very devastating circumstances and others who haven't experienced have that don't seem to be able to cope. And in studying uh, the really the science of, of positive psychology, I think we are beginning to really come to an understanding of that more so than I think we did even 20, 30 years ago. And I think the people who are able to get up and go on with their lives, they have their emotional life uh, is intact. They know how to um, to develop uh, positive emotions, even from devastating experiences. They know how to uh, to find flow. They know how to immerse themselves in experiences that are intrinsically meaningful to them. Uh, they have a sense of meaning and purpose in their life that, uh, that is larger than they are uh, as individuals. And they 
celebrate their achievements rather than beating themselves up for their failures. And finally, one of the more important things is the relationships in their lives. They bring people to them who support them and nurture them and care for them. Uh, and I think all five of those things are critically important to all of us. And I think that that is really what makes the difference. We hear in this business, I mean, I, I just I hear it all the time. You have to have a positive mindset. And I think oftentimes they miss the point because it sounds so manipulative to me. Think positive and everything's going to be fine. Well, when you have these five core principles in place, you don't have to tell yourself to think positively because your positive thoughts emerge and grow from a well-balanced life that you put together. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's, no, that's it, my perception. It, it definitely does. And, you know, I, it reminded me, I, I talked with, I was on, a, uh, I, I had a performance coach on my podcast and I asked her of the people that she had uh, coached, she, I believe she had uh, over 50 people that were eight figure earners that she was currently coaching. And I asked her of those, of those 50 people, would you say that the, the majority of them had had more or less adversity in their life than the average person? And her statement hit me hard and your statement just kind of backed it up. But her statement was that they have actually had more, but what they have had is in that adversity, they have learned, this is how you pick yourself up. This is how you dust yourself off. This is how you learn. This is how you reinvent. This is how you rearticulate. This is how you recalibrate. And this is how you reengage. And with those things, you know, it, it really, and, and, you know, the other thing that, that we've also programmed everyone to do is not to fail, mm -hmm. right? One of my favorite books uh, by John Maxwell is Failing Forward, right? I love that book, right? And, and when you start to look at the principle that we look at when we go to school, me doing your psychology project totally wrong is a failure and my grade mm -hmm. will show it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't teach me to follow instructions better. It teaches me to get right inside the box and to just do exactly what's there, not to challenge status quo and to maybe take on a bigger aspect or a bigger thought process or, or push the boundaries of what you're really asking for. It teaches me to stay in this very narrow space. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at how that happens in real life, that then translates to play it safe, get a job, work nine to five, get a mortgage, don't take risks, right? Do all the things that are safe by the station wagon, right? Rather than be able to live that out of the box, off the hook kind of life that says, hey, I understand that I am going to fail. I am responsible for that failure. I am not excited about it, but I understand it's coming. And out of that, I'm going to learn. And when I learn, I'm going to be better and I'm going to get to where I want to go, you know, and, and your statement is, is very much in line with that because in that whole process, we try to avoid the pain 
Not that pain is ever good, <laughs> but pain brings growth, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that that's as we go into this market that we're in, where we're starting to see, you know, we just saw that $225 million repossession by Arbor uh, in auction in, um, in Houston last wow. week. Yeah. Uh, it was four assets that were bought in a very short period of time between, uh, I believe, April of 21 and August of 22 have already been foreclosed on. Mm. Um, and it was very unfortunate. There's about $60 million in investor equity that is gone. Wow. But somebody approached me and they said, hey, you know, look at that great deal that Arbor got. They were able to buy those assets under market. Mm hmm. And I turned it and I said, well, wait a minute. Arbor was the foreclosing agent. They were the lender. And the way that foreclosures go is that it goes out the door at what the debt is. And the debt plus $1 starts the bidding. Mm -hmm. And nobody else bid on the projects. Mm -hmm. So to me, that to you, that may say Arbor got a great deal. Arbor would have liked just $1. Just give mm -hmm. me one more dollar and make it your problem. But right. nobody was willing to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody was willing to take on that, that mess right. of what it was because of where, is, where the market is now. And so now mm -hmm. Arbor is going to reposition that. Arbor will write down. Mm -hmm. Arbor will take losses on that. But that market has fallen so far because people were in the, I got to acquire it at any cost because I got to, I got to get a door count. I got to get a, you know, I got to, I got to look like I'm doing something here. And they bought an asset that they shouldn't have or three or four, but that asset has lost $60 million of its $300 million value or $280 million value. Mm -hmm. And it's still not even worth what the bank repossessed it for. Right. And that's the world we live in. And there's a lot of people getting off the bus and getting out of the deal and vacating very quickly because they don't want to deal with the pain instead of learn from that and go, what wasn't I looking at? What wasn't the syndicator looking at? What wasn't the property that I failed to see? What were the differences in what I thought versus what reality was that made this no longer a good deal that made this one fall apart? And instead of becoming a forensic scientist and finding out and doing a post-mortem and seeing what caused the crash, we're just walking away and saying real estate sucks. It's a great way to lose money, yeah. right? What do you say to people that, that come to you with that attitude in this market, having experienced something similar to what just happened? Well, the... There's another book that you'd probably be interested in. It's it's called Simply Grit, uh, and it's by Angela Duckworth. And she talks about uh, about essentially this uh, phenomena and that uh, it is actually uh, kind of a plague that we have today that we are not teaching our children to be resilient. But essentially what... What you're saying is is a repeat of 2007, 2008, uh, and leading up to that 2006 and even into the early parts of 2007, you'd go to uh, the courthouse steps when there is a foreclosure there, there'd be gobs of people there bidding on these properties. The crash hit in 2008, 
and nobody was on the steps of those foreclosure properties. And the banks couldn't get that $1 more above right. their mortgages. And the banks were taking back properties right and left. And like you said, writing those down and taking uh, losses on those because banks can only hold so many uh, defunct assets on their right. books. They have to, they have to get rid of them. And when nobody pays the dollar extra, it's it's on their books, and they have to act to to get rid of that. So, so if people find themselves in this situation, I can tell them I've been there, I've done that, uh, and I know the pain and the anguish, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to hurt for a long time. <laughs> but I still remember can... my first loss, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, yeah. in listening to you today tell the story didn't make it less painful. Yeah. It's just that since then, you've had some wins. Since right. then, you've learned some lessons, right? Absolutely. Since then, you have some safeguards. Right. So, yeah, the the thing is, is learn from uh, this mistake and and learn that, you know, optimism is is terrific. Uh, you know, optimism expands. Uh pessimism always diminishes and decreases. So you have to hold on to your optimism, but be sure it is not delusional optimism. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people learning that lesson right yes. now, the difference between optimism and delusional optimism. Yes. That is, that is well said. Yes. And it's going to be hard. You're going to be hurting bad. It's going to be hard to be optimistic. But learn from this, maintain your optimism, and you can come out on the other side of this stronger and better than what you went into. That's what I would tell people. You know, and that's so true. I mean, I look at where I'm at, and I look at, you know, the the panic that I remember in 2007 and, and, and eight and nine and 10. And, and I remember all of those feelings and all of those lessons that I learned in the hard knocks and the way that I did things right and the way that I did things wrong. Those are the part of me that is not afraid of this market, right? Because mm -hmm. they've already been through there. Now I've got right. some other tender areas that we're going to be working on, right? I've got some other things that I don't like to address that we're going to be working on in 2023, Right. And I'm sure in 2024, there's going to be some more things to work on. But it's the embracing of that that gives you that reality of this is the best thing I can be doing with my time in retrospect, because I already have the problem and I can either get through it or I can act like it didn't happen or I can do quite a few different things. Yeah. What do you think is the what is what do you think is the eighteen month forecast of real estate in your opinion? <laughs> well, um, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Uh, I think it's I don't think we're going to uh, to see a whole lot of damage for probably another six months. And I think in another six months, we're going to start seeing uh, a lot of tears. And I think uh, within the next 12 months, those are going to continue. Um, and 18 months out, that's a long way to look out there. <laughs> a lot of things could happen. 
and there's a lot of geopolitical things going on in yeah. uh, in the world right now that when I've been talking to most real estate investors, they're actually oblivious to what is going on on the world stage. Uh, I, I, I don't I, I don't know how many I, I have not had talked to, I don't think, a single uh, interviewee that has mentioned the fact that the petrodollar is going away. And uh, what's that going to do to the U.S. economy? It's going to be devastating. Well, not only is the petrodollar going away, our, our, uh, our allies are a shorter list than those that are outflanking us in BRICS, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, We've also got the Fed now dollar, which is the foundation for a central digital currency, uh, which isn't going to help anyone. Uh, you know, uh, we've got we've actually got legislators that are scrambling trying to put us back on a gold standard, uh, which you know that's not going to work because if you can't print it, we're going to be problematic, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. It's like closing the gate after the the cattle are already out. Right, exactly, yeah. and then and then continuing to look this way when the cows <laughs> went out that way, right? And, and you exactly, just, yeah. you know, and yeah. and there's there's so much of that, and I don't think we've ever been at a more precarious time in the world leadership position of the United States, uh, along with the reality that we went from, I believe our number was uh, about six hundred billion dollars a year in interest on the on the US debt to over a trillion dollars a year at current interest rates in interest only on mm-hmm. our current debt and we still have lawmakers wanting to send money to everybody you mm-hmm. know so as we continue to do that we're weakening the dollar that's no longer the petrodollar that's that that now we have more people wanting to trade in other currencies do you know that right now in Russia the, the number one traded currencies is the Chinese yuan, mm-hmm. not the dollar anymore. And that has yeah. happened in 60 days. Yeah, because, because Saudi Arabia is exchanging oil in, uh, in the Chinese yuan. And how, <laughs> so, uh, how much do we still export of our oil? Um, I don't know that. Do you? But I, I know we do uh, export, yeah. right? Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. So why but, are we exporting yeah. at all? Right? While we're while we're depleting our reserves, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just there's things that don't line up. That there needs yeah. to be a complete rethink of what's happening because all of this stuff is hurting the U.S. and how mm-hmm. it is going to react and the buying power of the dollar. And if we were to just turn inward on our thinking, on our spending, on everything else, and stop looking outward and stop being the world police and the world problem solver, I think a lot of our issues would definitely change, but I don't know that politicians understand that. It doesn't appear that they do. Yeah, I mean, from my opinion, the the leaders of our country now, and this, uh, this is not a partisan <laughs> issue, it's on both sides of the coin. Absolutely. They still think we're back in, they still think we're back in 1989 when the Soviet Union fell. Yeah. They're they're leading us exactly with that same mindset. Well, and and it's they a act different like we've world. got a president like Teddy Roosevelt in office that's you know ready to go out there and kick some butt when we mm-hmm. don't and haven't for quite some time. Yeah. And I agree with you. This is not a partisan issue. I, I don't think that there are two parties in our in the United States anymore without making it too political. I think there's us and them. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, well, let's jump back <laughs> onto our, our topic here of real estate because all of those things do factor in, and you're very correct. Absolutely, yes, they do. Don't pay attention to what's happening in the world, but if you've got a collapsing petrodollar, if you've got a mm -hmm. collapsing value in what you carry in your hand, and I try to tell people this all the time, your three-bedroom, two-bath house didn't grow a second floor. Mm -hmm. So why is it worth more? Yeah. It's not worth more. The dollar went down in value. You just have to bring me more of them to get what I have. Mm -hmm. And people have a hard time wrapping their head around that. But if you've got a dollar that's falling off a cliff, your best choice is to buy assets because you'll be able to get the same buying power. You'll just have a much larger stack. Whereas if you leave them in dollars, this, the size of your stack doesn't mm -hmm. change. And then when you go to buy a tomato, it's now nine of them or eggs, mm -hmm. right? So what do you say to people when they say, oh, I don't want to do real estate right now because, you know, it's tumultuous time. It's, mm -hmm. there's all this stuff going on and I really want to be liquid in my, my funds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd say the same thing you just, you just said. Your, your funds, if they're in dollars, they, uh, I was watching uh, uh, Robert Kiyosaki um, program the other day and he was he was holding up the dollar bill and he said this is toilet paper uh, and yeah holding your assets in cash is uh, is you're just you're going to end up with nothing uh, you've got to put it in hard assets yeah so uh, even though you know um, and and the and the buying opportunities are coming <laughs> you know? yeah yeah. And they are. So so now you're weighing the, the liquidity issue of how liquid do I need to keep myself and where do I need to put that and how do I short-term manage my cash so that I have something available in a few months, mm -hmm. which is a bit tricky. How are you doing that? <laughs> I've still got it in uh, in in banks and it's like, eesh. I don't like this feeling. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean the other the other option is uh, is uh, precious metals, and I have I've never invested in precious metals, so it's a whole new thing to me. So I before I put my bank money in precious metals, I'm going to have to learn a whole lot more about about that. I have thought about doing some foreign investments because. Uh, I, like you said, the BRICS, uh, in terms of population, in terms of countries, they far outweigh us. I think about in terms of uh, of countries solidly associated with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. I think we're about fourteen percent of the overall population. Uh, we just don't have the numbers on our side. Yeah. And um, and uh, the BRICS is just coming into formation, but I think that's where I want my money. <laughs> well, and you know, that's the thing. I mean, we've gotten so comfortable being the world leader that, you know, we've always just assumed that, that America, were, investing in America is a safe investment. And yeah. to a large degree, it still is. I mean, it, I wouldn't be going and investing in the Congo or or, you know, some of these other places that are, you know, third world terrorist hotbeds, but there are a lot of places like Portugal and Costa Rica 
and you know uh places like that that you're hearing about uh mm-hmm. you know turkey and things like that that are still solid investments and and yet you're not allowed the leverage but you're allowed the the thought process that you know what we're not going to have a international conflict there anytime soon and i own an asset so their currency may not be necessarily stable but the asset definitely is yeah. well this is uh this has been a great conversation Alan, in in closing, how can people find out more about you and where you're at and what you're doing and what you've got going on in the world? Well, they can just go to to my website. It's the best place to go, which is steedtalker.com. And that's steed like the horse and talker like I've done way too much of that in this program and uh, dot com. So that's S-T-E-E-D-T-A-L-K-E-R.com. They can uh, find out more about me there. They can schedule a 15 minute phone call, talk about anything you want, and I'll be happy to, uh, to hear from you. Awesome. Well, Alan, I do appreciate that. And I'm glad you uh, said as much as you did, because uh, otherwise I'm carrying a one-sided conversation and that's really (laughs) difficult on a podcast. So you've been a fantastic guest. You're always welcome here. And I appreciate you showing up here on the Real Estate Rundown. Guys, if you like the program, you know where to go. Like, subscribe, click on the button. Let us know, man. What are the topics you want to be talking about? Who are the guests you think we should have on the show? Once again, Alan Lomax, thanks for showing up. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com and be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.